0: Welcome to Contourcast. My name's Cat Boyd. I'm joined with my lovely glamorous COVID co-host David Jameson.
1: How's it going? Good to speak to you.
0: <laughs> Is it?
1: Well, yeah, uh, I suppose so.
0: <laughs> what a weird thing to say. Um, how are you?
1: Uh, I'm doing all right. I am um doing alright i Possibly going slightly mad from the the lockdown. Um, though, you know, the 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 good weather drew me out yesterday, as I suppose it many it did for many people, possibly some of them, you know, into the embrace of the coronavirus. Hopefully not me.
0: Being outside at the moment makes me feel like I'm in some sort of virtual reality simulation. Do you know what I mean? Like I've got to dodge people, like I feel like I'm on a sort of Mad Max type mission at the end of the world. I'm trying to stay six feet away from people. I mean, it's very busy yesterday out on the streets
1: yeah um i mean I, I stay away from all the kind of shopping areas when i go out for a walk because it becomes really really stressful <laughs> like as soon stressful. As dodging people on the street uh, and also like it, it, you become irrationally angry quite quickly oh yeah
0: i have a lot of like big resentments at the moment to joggers
1: yeah, yeah i'm like you're breathing like, all everyone's
0: a jogger now like calm down
1: I know, I know, and look, I I know that you're only doing it because it's really fashionable at the moment because of coronavirus. Do you know one thing that I saw um, yesterday in the park, and I've seen it a couple of times now, is like um, middle-class kids, and I mean kids, I mean sort of like 10-year-olds and stuff, right, out jogging. Now, I have never, ever seen that uh, before because, of course, the way kids traditionally do exercises, they play games, play sports and they play hopscotch and they they race against each other. Or you just
0: like stay inside and get fat and play video games. (laughs) Is that not like the real childhood experience (laughs) these days?
1: That's the traditional childhood experience. But it did make me think about, um, there's famously this thing about the invention of exercise in the Victorian era, that it was partly about um, middle class people distinguishing themselves from working-class people and saying, not only do I have the leisure time to think about doing this activity, it's always it's famously a very public activity. If you're a real exerciser, you have to do it in everyone's face because you're making a statement about how you're in... that you're part of a lifestyle of people for protecting their health and stuff like that. But it, it just it makes me wonder how that um, culture is going to kind of evolve. If you even have right, young kids out doing exercise, kids don't need to exercise, except for the fat ones that we were just discussing. Uh, but like like these kind of like these kids don't need to exercise, but it's it's being done as kind of like uh an acculturation into that 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 subculture of status, you know what I mean?
0: I think that exercise should be conducted in privacy. Like I think that there's something really weird about public exercising like I would not dream of like jogging around the area that I live like I would rather just do stuff like in my home like if I'm exercising I want it to be private so that then when I get like all fit and toned and I like go outside people will be like wow how did you do that is that that weird am I being weird possibly
1: (laughs) it reminded me a little bit of that of that bit in Girl Interrupted um where the, the, the girl who refuses to eat in front of anyone says, would you take a shit in front of anyone, right? Which is... Which I mean, is,
0: spot the lie.
1: <laughs> which is, out know, I feel a bit eaten. I think it's an obscene activity that no one should be doing in public. But, um, no, I Do you
0: remember the, like, the good old days when, like, the number one gripe was people who like, ate food on the subway? Like that was my number one gripe previously. Oh, we, yeah. Previous we, to lockdown would be people eating like a chippy or McDonald's on the Glasgow Underground. Like that would actually be my number one you need an asbo moment. Yeah. And now <laughs> and now I long for the wafting of fish and vinegar through a subway carriage. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um I, I like that on a train where you can never quite tell if it's like a fish supper or pish, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
0: pish and chips.
1: Yeah, pish and chips. Uh, <laughs> no but do you remember we talked about this once before on the pod, um, that there's like a, there was like a subculture of like women haters online uh, who set up oh, yeah. Facebook pages about women eating on public transport. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> taking pictures of them and stuff.
0: <laughs> a a a lot. Is um, it not like a bit of a fetish? I don't know.
1: I wonder that. I, I don't know. They seem to hate these women, but do they hate them in a kind of fetishistic way? I'm not. I'm not sure. Probably. Uh, yeah. Probably. Uh, um,
0: yeah. So how how is the core going for you? Like, are you being productive or super like lazy and bummed out? <laughs> it, it,
1: it tends to swim erratically. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like hour too? by hour.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like I, yeah,
1: can, so. I can either be extremely productive and that does it's creepy but that does make you feel good. But then, see if you solve for an hour you can't start again. Yeah. And then and then you're locked into a cycle of self loathing. Um, uh, and the less you do, the more you hate yourself, and then the more you hate yourself, the less motivated you are to do anything. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh <laughs> Which uh, to be honest, I think is quite a common experience uh, of life in general. I just think it's been slightly magnified by uh, the, the the situation of the lockdown. It's got me thinking a lot actually about um, the modern economy and like workplace discipline. So there's been some reports out in Scotland by Scottish think tanks in the last few days sort of a- asking the question. You know, we're not at the stage where they're going to start making pronouncements, but big business think tanks are asking questions like, um, do we really need so much of the workforce to travel into offices? Can we not have more working from home? Which to me is a fascinating question because of course, that would add to a general trend in Western economies where workers are supplying more and more of the capital um, in their own exploitation process. So if you look at the economy today, as you know, 100 years ago, People weren't bringing in their own machinery to a factory. Uh, in the last decade, the number of workers supplying their own tech, their own laptops, their own phones, um, supplying their own cars, if you look at something like Uber, so that the, the, this phenomenon of workers supplying their own capital has increased uh, enormously. And now we've got to the stage of that discussion where we're talking about workers supplying their own office spaces, um, which again has probably been something that's been incrementally increasing for a long time. I just, I find that um, fascinating as, as a social development. But it's also, as far as I'm concerned, because like people are all this up like, oh, the streets are much less congested. Why can't more people work from home? I think two reasons. First of all, if I'm going to turn a room in my house, flat, house, it be a long time for a fucking house. Um, if I'm going to turn, a, if, I mean, I'm doing this from my kitchen right now, right? If I'm going to turn my kitchen into an office, you can pay me for it you know what I mean I'm renting this you know what I mean for my uh, I don't mean you specifically uh, uh, need to pay for a kitchen but, um, but if, if workers are going to be you know we're literally renting office space for our bosses at the moment it's incredible it's an incredible situation I
0: mean I think that I think people should be able to work from home if they want to yeah. um, maybe that's like I don't know I the thing that I'm finding quite fascinating right now is how this new work life that we're experiencing, like for those of us who are, you know, still still working through this, how this like fits with the concept of like the Californian ideology. Yeah. So like the Californian ideology, um, you know, it's it's a fusion. It it was an essay written in like the mid nineties that talks about the the it's basically it's a critique of like technology neoliberalism that's very much embodied in the the californian way of like big tech and wellness and it's like this fusion of like the new left and the new right and their ideas coming together and it's very much roundabout about like productivity and entrepreneurship and like and wellness like all of these things and i see like that californian ideology like having a massive resurgence right now with lots of productivity apps but also sticking in a little bit of meditation on top of that and you know staying well so that you can be like super productive and have loads of ideas and create and blah 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 i don't know if you've noticed that stuff
1: yeah, I have been thinking a lot. I suppose because of the there's a really strange kind of welding of that kind of ultra neoliberal ethic, and that the kind of new arguments in capitalism around the need for a stronger state and stuff like that. Um, I've been thinking about that kind of clash of ideologies. Um, it, this is quite a fascinating one to me because the model that we've had up until now of capitalism, the cultural ethic of that system has always been basically, do you know, like, like, there was a time, I suppose 150 years ago, when a major argument on the left was, um, it's kind of the bread and roses argument, we're not just the people who argue for the economic security of the working class, we're also arguing that we need to break down the conformity and the constricture uh, and the lack of cultural expression that capitalism forces workers into. I think that argument is still valid in a different way today, but it is heavily augmented by the fact that, like, that neoliberal capitalist idea, what you're just describing there, it does, like, capitalism does actually encourage a form of cultural life. Neoliberalism encourages a certain form of cultural life because its argument is. So long as you're not talking about state power, so long as you're not talking about the rich and our control of the economy and and ultimate control of society, we want you to go away and to reimagine your social life as part of a subculture or part of a community or part... Do you know what I mean? Like Mm. Neoliberalism actually involves a project of telling people, don't think of yourself in terms of your relationship to the state. Don't think of yourself in terms of your relationship or the relationships between social classes. Think reimagine society as a society of cliques and subcultures and countercultural movements and stuff like that. And you can find your own little niche within the system that won't run up against my interests. And so you're actively encouraged to do that. That's what lifestyleism is. You're actively encouraged to think that the meaning of your life is how you express it through your lifestyle, which like is a very your own
0: individual lifestyle.
1: Yeah, um, and and that's a very modern idea about what human life should be. Uh, and I, I suggest it's a fundamentally, I mean, unnatural. Perhaps isn't the point, but it's it's a, it's a very recent development, um, and one that I think is coming into crisis. I think that a lot of people are age and younger increasingly are chafing against this idea that they should have a lifestyle and that's how they should understand their relationship to society. Um, but it, it's, it's fascinating to me because it makes me think a lot about the, the, the relationship that exists there between um, the kind of liberal win of capital and the emerging more kind of authoritarian uh, arguments within the capitalist class. So like, Um, George Soros is a a, a fascinating character in this regard. It would be wrong to think, so so George Soros, through things like his Open Society Foundation and stuff like that, he's a great pusher of this particular idea of capitalism, that um, the system is what it is, it's almost naturally organically occurring, and for it to work over the long term and for people to feel aligned with it you know, we need a huge area of civil life in society where people can express differentiated lifestyles a pluralism of social forms in society where you know, we should have a very tolerant democratic, you know within within basic the basic paradigm of, sort of parliamentary democracy we should have a relatively liberal tolerant democratic um, society and someone like Soros of course. believes in that vision, that very neoliberal vision of of global capitalism, partially because of the formative experiences of his life. He experienced Nazi Germany, he experienced, well hang on, did he live in Nazi Germany was in the occupied territories, but he experienced the, the Nazi dictatorship, he experienced the Soviet Union, and his attitude emerging out of that was, first of all, there's a human attitude which is just, it was awful. Right, mm. But but also, um, it was self-destructive, so both of those systems collapsed, and like fascism collapsed rapidly and spectacularly and plunged the entire global system into uh, a nightmare. But um, I suppose his win of capital, and the neoliberalism got a huge intellectual boost out of the experiences of fascism and, and the Soviet Union. Their argument was, this can't last, you can't create a a lasting social order when the state is making demands upon the way people live. When the state has plans for people, those plans will always come across. But it's interesting to me because I suspect that this is gonna be an argument that's gonna be readdressed within the global capitalist system, there are increasing voices who say, no, what you've created is, uh, you've created a society which isn't a society; it's just an economy, and you've told people to go and do the society bit on their own, and and, and that's a, an unsustainable form of, uh, of of governing society.
0: I mean, I think that at one point, certainly, like a lot of like counterculture was built out of the fact that um, the state should not be planning out people's life courses. Mm. Do you know, like I, it makes me think of that song by xtc making plans for nigel mm-hmm. you know the song i'm talking about he has his future in british steel and all that stuff you yeah. know it was like a big part of like countercultural movements now to be honest there's people who would give the right arm for the security and safety of a state intervention in their life to give them a clear path of yeah. like economic and cultural security um, I mean, this stuff about like the Californian ideology is fascinating to me because of the technology that we are surrounded with whilst in quarantine like whilst we're in lockdown, so I see a lot of like stuff on Instagram that's like, Ah, oh, you know this is now the time where you can write that screenplay you've been waiting to write you can like write that novel, you know you can make that movie like all that sort of stuff. I'm like, this is <laughs> This is not liberating and like the core part of the Californian ideology centers around this idea that technology will liberate us from state control and give us a way to, you know, be in charge of our own destiny. Um, yeah, and I'm just honestly like watching people during the quarantine, I am not convinced that having more people online <laughs> is good for the left or for revolutionary politics in any sense. Like people being very online pre lockdown gave me the fear. Now during lockdown, people like are spilling. It's it's the same as you know the stuff we we're talking about about like you know the not eating in front of people. Like don't shit your personal life all over the fucking internet. No one wants to see you on live stream, babes.
1: I know and and I think um there's that problem of social media seems to have destroyed a recognition in some people's minds that like I don't know everyone's life is is, is a is a, a private life and a public persona isn't it?
0: Well, I think especially in social media, people are performing a version of their self for public consumption and the lines become so blurred that you're no longer are performing a version of yourself, you're performing self for public consumption.
1: And yeah, that's weird. Yeah. I, 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 there's also it has, there's this kind of reciprocation of it on social media where see if you're the sort of person who has a, a Twitter account that just says every couple of days i've had another meltdown of crying all over the place um i, I hate myself and all that kind of stuff <laughs> if there's, if there's a lot of value in um uh like people will come onto your, your your people will send you messages and stuff saying oh uh, you're a great person i love you you know everyone goes through phases like this and that shit they are doing that so that other people see them doing that They're not doing it because they they give a shit about you. So you can you you watch these horrible circuses unfolding of people spilling their guts online and they're reinforced in that behaviour by all of their fake friends (laughs) on a social media platform piling in and being like that, I love you, take care of yourself, great self-care and all that shit. Not understanding that they're not doing that for you. you It's
0: it's performative.
1: Yeah, it's it's just it's the It's just this hideous uh, spectacle of layers of um, performance, uh, you know, sort of emotional performance um, to kind of raise your kind of social media credit score. um.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Like There is value and currency in performing those roles of, oh, take care of yourself, hashtag mental health awareness, like all of that stuff. And I'm not saying that... You know some of the like PSAs on social media aren't useful for people but I feel genuine I, if I was to tweet every fucking insane thought that I had like I I, I would be I'd be locked up David I, do you know what I mean there would be a medical intervention yeah. Yeah. if I was to do you know what I mean we're just talking about how hour by hour we'll go from oh actually this is fine to oh my god I cannot cope. Do you know what I mean? Like, imagine you were expressing that on social media, and I see people doing it, and I just feel like what they are doing is they're taking their trousers down and taking a dump on someone's fucking desk in public and broadcasting it to yeah, the world. Yeah, look
1: at me, I'm taking a shit. I mean, but there is a reason that the the uh, you know the super ego and the Ed are separated. You know what I mean? <laughs> there's, a, there's an argument for keeping those things separated. Um, yeah
0: people need to get the ego back in the driving seat <laughs> yeah
1: um see on the see, see on this um stuff about like that split between the neoliberals and the, and the new authoritarians um it was also uh it also kind of appeared to me in a I say a new manifestation an old manifestation do you remember around the time 2008 the 2008 crisis um the business press in particular started churning out all these articles about whether if women had been the bankers, none of those awful risks would have <laughs> been taken, and yeah. the economy would be And
0: it's a it, that's an old sort of inverse of the traditional sexism, which is like that women are essentially
1: a particular way.
0: Like if women ran the world, there would be no wars.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's a kind of a yeah, famous old one um well that argument has has reemerged um brutally uh there's an article i'm just having a look at it on forbes uh forbes obviously a business magazine again i find it fascinating i mean this is this is kind of pure unadulterated corporate feminism people throw that phase around but this is literally what that is um and it's an article listing how um countries where uh, there are women leaders are dealing with the coronavirus outbreak there. Incidentally... I've seen
0: something like that about this on (laughs) not business magazine but TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Someone's made a TikTok
1: about it. Yeah, there are about like twenty of these articles currently doing around. I mean I, I I do sometimes worry at the state of the grift in the media where do you know what I mean? It's like someone writes an article and then twenty versions of it suddenly appear and um, with sort of various levels of just sort of re- rhetoric, there's no kind of research going into it. But anyway, like this this article is are sort of being shared by people who you think of as you know, quite smart and measured and stuff like that, and then you remember, like I say, it's being shared so that people see you sharing. It's being shared so that people see you saying, isn't it great that all these women leaders are um, you know, saving their people from coronavirus, whereas our, whereas our awful men leaders are not doing so. There, there, is actually, <laughs> there is actually, I think, an interesting political point in the countries that are listed here. So obviously it's, uh, you know iceland uh, several Nordic countries there's new zealand uh Germany is in a sense the exception because most of the countries here um which are are led by women are sort of peripheral states to the global system, which nonetheless fall within the kind of ambit of the uh uh of, of the kind of western sphere of influence, which is typically where you find. Um, some, of the mo- some of the most kind of cohesive and homogenous and uh, stable uh, and prosperous examples of modern Western capitalism. So the Nordic countries, obviously, New Zealand uh, is a similar example. I think I do think that's interesting as an observation that that's where you find most of these women leaders. I don't know what that suggests in the wider of analysis. But in any case, um, the main recipient of this uh, love in is Angela Merkel, who I've seen people increasingly refer to uh, as Mooty in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> I've a,
0: seen, I've seen. This has been going on for a long time. Yeah, yeah. It's, the mooty Merkel" thing is. I'm, I'm sorry, but like you were just talking about the id and the super ego. I know. <laughs> Let's do some analysis.
1: Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, look, I always found it a bit creepy that um, in Germany. She was referred to as Mooty, but I did also kind of think, well, you know, it's the Germans, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I used to sort of go around you're know, sort of going, Mooty, and all this kind of stuff, you know, that sort of creepy, xenophobic, uh, you know, anti German uh, voice. Apologies, this this segment will carry a certain degree of uh, anti-German xenophobia. But uh, no, but I, the I way that sh- you're
0: saying "muti" there is um, absolutely stereotypical of like weird German porn.
1: <laughs> Muti, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> so that I found I found that disturbing on its own. But now that it's migrated into like the English-speaking world and people are referring to Anglo Merkel as "muti." I mean, get a, get a grip of yourself. But listen listen to this. So in that Forbes article, there's a whole subsection called love, right? Where it talks about the reason that um, women leaders are, are better than uh, men leaders is, is because they love us like women love children, right? Listen to this section. I could not believe this. It's like their arms are coming out of their videos to hold you close in a heartfelt and loving embrace. Who knew leaders could sound like this? Now we do. How creepy is that, man? You, honestly. <laughs> so, it's so terrifying. Like, even the imagery of that, it's like that film Poltergeist, do you know what I mean? These arms coming out of the TV screen to, 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 to smother you with their love.
0: Do you know the only like woman that that would be alright in reference to is probably Melania Trump (laughs) (laughs) doing her like weird addresses to the nation.
1: (laughs) I just I can't fathom how anyone could write that a sub editor could look at it an editor could look at it and, and not say this is unsound. You can't... (laughs) Unhinged. You you cannot say that we need to have more women leaders because they can mother us. I mean, it's it's gross, man. I
0: I mean, it is a weird... uh, There is a weird psychology to this. I mean, I think that any adult male referring to Angela Merkel as Mooty is basically Norman Bates <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? so yeah. take a long hard look at yourself guys but a bit, a bit, um, also Angela Merkel like is not like this is the this is the thing I've seen like a lot of rehabilitation of Angela Merkel and um, even on the left yeah, right now. Bizarre. Um, you know, Angela Merkel. You know, she's a scientist.
1: No, oh, no.
0: She's a scientist, and we should listen to the scientists.
1: Got to listen to the experts.
0: Yeah, like which is, I mean, that's that's classic neoliberalism. Listen to the expert stuff, right? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's very typical of the European Union as well. You know, get yeah. rid of your democratically elected leaders and stick in a technocrat instead. Yeah, absolutely. But, but this is the thing is, like, there's always been an edge to parts of the, the centre-left who love leaders like Angela Merkel. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, And talk about how, you know, she's um, really compassionate when it comes to refugees, you know, like Germany's approach to the refugee crisis. And I'm like, she, she didn't do anything she just didn't close the borders I know. She, made, she maintained the principle of free movement in the EU she just didn't close the borders she did nothing and it's under her watch that we've seen right wing populism raging through Europe and it's under her watch that refugees drowned in the, the sea I know. I know. Like, and the role that she played in the austerity measures in Greece like, is unforgivable yeah, unforg- there was like, she stoked a degree of like kind of national chauvinism. I mean, there's articles in um, the Spiegel, mm. like from 2010, 2011, that are talking about Angela Merkel using like right wing populist <laughs> and European language. Right. Um, which is, you know, when you think about it now, it's hilarious. You know, when she talked, she basically went round saying the Greeks are lazy and take too many holidays.
1: Yeah, no, no. I mean,
0: she's not some sort of like, um, I don't know, benevolent liberal. Like she's at the heart of the, the flawed. Greek austerity measures. She designed those austerity measures in order to save German banks who were the ones who were irresponsibly lending to the Greek economy. Anyway, it was nothing to do with the Greek irresponsibility. It was German banks that were being irresponsible. Yeah. she's the one that went round saying the Greeks are irresponsible so that she could defuse the class antagonisms that were developing in her part of the European Union and started saying it's the Greeks' fault. She is the one who created, not single-handedly, the tensions between the North and South in the European Union, the rich and poor in the European Union. And then everybody's hand wringing about where did all these right-wing populists come from in Europe?
1: No, it's incredible. They it? came
0: from mummy. Yeah. If like, she's a mummy... She is, she's mummy dearest. <laughs> if anyone's ever seen that film, do you know what I mean? She's stomping around the European Union shouting "no wire hangers."
1: <laughs> she, uh, I mean, it, it, one of her children is very obviously the AFD in Germany. So the AFD's attitude to the European Union—I think people always imagine they were a bit like German UK. They're not at all. The AFD is very pro-EU. But their attitude to the EU is it should be more obviously about Germany, right? And, and these poor countries need to do what we tell them and fuck off, right? So that, that in a sense, is th- those are the arguments that Angela Merkel was utilising. It's the same pattern as here in the UK, where Gordon Brown used the phrase British jobs for British workers first, right? And then people like you kept started picking ideas like that up. And so, once you've unleashed that kind of animus into society, other forces can pick it up and use it. Yeah.
0: I mean, this is, like, why I always think of neoliberalism, like, particularly in the European context, as an urubus. It's the serpent eating its own tail. Yeah. Like, it is because of the... Response from the rich nations in the EU that fueled the flames of like anti EU sentiment, right? I think that that's like undoubtedly true. That when you start to try and resolve those class tensions, you know, and say, well, actually, it's not, it's nothing to do with the financial institutions here. It's actually to do with, you know, the fact that, you know, Greeks retire early and take too many holidays and, you know, sit around having coffees all day. Like that, that, that. that narrative that was spun by like the leaders of the rich European nations, like Angela Merkel, but not only her, that essentially undermined the mythology of the European Union as this like project of unity and solidarity, which is laughable anyway. Yeah. But you're right. You know this extends to the UK. You know it is Gordon Brown saying British jobs for British workers.
1: And, and we are now, of course, in the second, basically the second great EU crisis. But, you know, inside basically inside 10 years, we're now in the second one. So, for people still to be saying this about Angela Merkel is just bizarre, but I mean, in general, Angela Merkel will be remembered as the politician who undermined uh, the Western European unity that emerged from the end of the Second World War. I think that's that's basically going to be her outstanding legacy. They're not going to remember that she was a scientist. They, wasn't, they were not going to remember her as Mooty, right? They're going to remember her as... Um, I mean, she's she's been the most powerful politician in Europe for uh, a long time now, so she'll be remembered as a formative and important figure in the development of European society, but as one whose legacy is ultimately catastrophic uh, for mm-hmm. the continent. Um, and I, I, just, I, I just wonder when that's gonna, that reality is going to catch up on some people. Um, I am always reminded these days of, I think it's Marx has this analogy of why ideologies outlast the material processes that give them life, which is you know, once you cast a stone into uh, a pool of water, um, the ripples continue uh, even once the, the stone, stone is sunk to the bottom. The ripples keep spreading out for ages. Um, Europeanism's a lot like that as an ideology. The the material basis for arguing that the European Union represents social progress uh, hasn't existed for a very long time. You know what I mean? You you would need to go back um, at this point to the early years of the 2000s for that to be a, a halfway reasonable argument. By now, it's an impossible argument But the the fantasy of the European Union will long outlast the the evidence of of the the reality of what it is. Part of it is people want it to be true so badly. They're so desperate for it to be true.
0: And so we've talked a bit about Mooty.
1: (laughs) Oh, I I see just to make one last point about this, right? The reason I introduced that was because it kind of gels with... I mean, we've talked before about how in modern politics, lots of people want daddy. You know, lots of people want daddy to make a plan for Nigel, right? Well, <laughs> um, but I just, I just think it's interesting that the other side of that is the people who want Mooty, You know, what I mean, mm. they they want they want this kind of like um, mystified kind of feminine figure who's going to be at once. A kind of parental figure, but also one who sort of, you know, encourages us to be who we want to be and you know, all that kind of stuff. That's still very much how ideology breaks down in society, which is a shame because because neither of those things is uh, ultimately a, a clear sighted view of the real tensions and the real interests that exist in society.
0: Um, I've started thinking of Keir Starmer as like stepdaddy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. do you know what i mean yeah yeah no, like definitely. he's
0: he's like so like he's desperately trying to make the children love him
1: yeah yeah uh he's well he's not helped by the he's got these kind of desperate eyes he's got these kind of poppy dog eyes they're not just oh, too, yeah. too close together he always looks terrified he always yeah. looks absolutely <laughs> terrified um, so it's that yeah you know what I mean he's gonna he's gonna end up sort of like buying his 16 year old steps on a motorbike or something (laughs) something. he's gonna end up doing something stupid Uh, Uh,
0: well he is like he is doing quite a lot of stupid shit to be honest
1: yeah um Aye, so we've, uh, we've had a first week of real opposition.
0: Real opposition, capital R, capital O. Yeah, it's KM. here.
1: It's here. The real opposition is here. Britain hasn't been a democracy for these last like five years or whatever. Up until this week, we're we're a new democracy. We're like one of those countries emerging from the end of the USSR. We're a new democracy. We've got Sadiq Uh How do you find how you, how you find the new opposition?
0: Oh, I mean, I think it's fascinating. Like, I all I see is, like, him banging on about, like, the exit strategy. Like, the Guardian ran, um, uh, lib voice piece, the Guardian, ran a front page. I think it was Guardian or The Observer, but, like, ran a front page that was, like, pressure builds over exit strategy plans. And it was all about how Keir Starmer was, like, pressing the government on, And how, when they're going to lift the lockdown, what will that look like? Like, got to get back to work and all this stuff. And I'm like, the lockdown is so incredibly popular. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying people like it, but there was that YouGov poll that said 91% of people support the lockdown measures being extended. Yeah. Um, This was before, obviously, the the last extension. But, I, I mean, why is he not... Just asking simple questions like, Where is the PPE supplies? When are they coming? Mm. How many people have died? And why are so many people dying? Like, these are the questions that need to be asked of government. Like, Boris Johnson's. (laughs) abdicated his responsibilities like I've been reading about Boris Johnson's like approach to being Prime Minister, it's hilarious like he just like takes every weekend off, he goes for like his country breaks, he works 9 to 5 he doesn't turn up at Cobra meetings like meh, you know he's quite relaxed about it Um, but like Keir Starmer seems to be like riding this like exit strategy hobby horse alongside the CBI
1: it's a really odd one, man. Like I, I just think that obviously Keir Starmer is um, desperate to tell business that like Labour is back as a safe party, pro-business party, right? So, but I, I, still think he could have waited till like the second week of his leadership. So he could have spent last week, as you say, doing re- the really basic opposition shit, which is yes, yeah, asking questions about are these death rates accurate. Because everyone knows they're not, right? Yeah. Um, could he not have said, why isn't there enough PPE? Because everyone in the country agrees, including the Tories, that there's not enough PPE, everyone agrees, right? Instead of landing those basic blows, he went off on this, like, weird business lobby tangent about we need to have a plan for, for how we end lockdown, right? This is the thing. I knew I knew that Keir Starmer would turn out to be incompetent. Like it's, we're so used to it at this point, you know what I mean, like, I, it's not that long ago that we had this kind of quote-unquote, you know, professional suit of a politician at at the helm of the official opposition, right, I remember Ed Miliband, it was a disaster, I remember Gordon Brown's prime ministership, disaster do you know what I mean like, yeah I mean,
0: these like suited politicians like they don't understand what's happening to politics do you know what I mean yeah. they just want to go back they want to like go back to like the good old days do you know what I mean pre-financial crash days that's what they want like and they don't understand what's happening anymore I mean you know I always like defended Jeremy Corbyn um, you know I think that that was the right call for socialists to do like i always defended Corbyn less so the labor party um of course but i think that was the right call but the reality is is that Corbyn like bernie like they're just too nice like yeah. what we need is like a really like vicious left-wing populist leader who's going to like, occupy the space that is so obviously vacant
1: yeah I, I totally agree. It's like,
0: certainly not Starmer, but like I mean, look at the other leadership candidates that the Labour Party had. I mean, none of them are the the leader that we need.
1: Yeah, it's it's all like, it's not it's not even that like they have the wrong attitude to politics. They don't. There's no. Uh, there's no kind of uh, the mood of insurgency. Where's the anger? If where you see where you see insurgent politics do, going well, right? I mean, I he's in trouble at the moment actually and like obviously no matter how much you loathe these people you have to be able to look at their successes and understand them see when you see someone like Matteo Salvini in Italy right you don't see him behaving like Rebecca Long-Bailey do you know, so why don't you learn from that why don't you see that uh, people who, who are passionate who are up for a fight and who are desperate to stick the boot in to their enemies and all of their supporters know that they're desperate to stick the boot in right? That's what people are looking for. like if, if To the extent that people want any kind of relationship with politics, like, of that level, parliamentary politics, and I actually think they're going to find people are just drifting away from it again, right?
0: I mean, I'm not interested in parliamentary politics.
1: Yeah. Uh, Do you
0: know what I mean? Like, I've never really been interested in it unless there's, like, do you know I mean, interesting gaps or periods or whatever, but, like, I'm never going to join a mainstream political party. Like, I don't think that that's where, like, politics is interesting anymore.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree. Like, even even in the historical periods where um, the parliamentary strategy was important for left-wing movements, say, in Europe, right, the crucial development was never the parliamentary development never has been so even if you look at like you you get people on the left these days who are very enamored with ideas like the popular front and stuff but see even in countries like spain and france where that was had a go at right obviously in spain but also in france extra parliamentary politics was by far the decisive factor by far socialist movements in parliament have never, like, they've always found themselves in the same deadlocks, the same compromises, the same problems. Like, to, to, to reuse that old phrase, that isn't parliamentary road to socialism, it's not possible. We've always known this. It's not, it's not even a really significant debate. Um, there was a debate, of course, around Corbyn and Bernie Sanders over, are these significant developments that leftists to take seriously and build out of? I obviously think the answer to that is yes, and I think to have ignored those moments is just a sort of, you know, it's it's just that kind of sectarian... Um, there's a slightly kind of nerdy politics you sometimes get on the left where it's sort of abstentionist because it's not... Um, it's not kind of pure development or something like that. And I do think that good yeah. things have come out of those experiences. But we, we knew that there were going to be limitations to that and they've been reached. And interestingly, they've been reached outside of power. So... I wouldn't want people to think that, like. I hope that a lesson that's taken from the Sanders and Corbyn phenomenon is not. Um, we got just so close to power, say, in in, in 2017 in Britain, um, and had we just got over the line, like, see the way that this the, the internal shenanigans and Labour are being discussed, right? Obviously. Oops, what a report that was. <laughs> I know that. Obviously, like. The right of the Labour Party are uh, fucking filth, right? It proves everything the people on the left were saying all mm. that time and so on, right? But I don't want people to think that that's... Like, that does express the weakness of the Corbyn phenomenon, that that mm. behaviour could go on, could be covered up for years and years and years. See, like, a lot of the attacks that were coming from the management of the Labour Party were being endorsed by people on the left, right? Mm-hmm. That, I know. that shows a structural limit- limitation in politics. Um, yeah. That it's not just this like a conspiracy happened and that's why we lost because our enemies beat us is never a good argument about how you need to reorganize your forces. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like we lost because our enemies beat us. Yeah, that means we I mean, lost because you lost.
0: There's a, a such a huge focus I think like on the like on the Labour left, yeah, and like the people who did support Corbyn but really bought into like a lot of the bullshit around anti-Semitism, like. There's always this drive to be, like, electable, whatever the fuck that means. Like, I don't know what that means, like, when people are talking about it. What I think they mean is that we need to pander to the (laughs) middle-England, middle-class swing voters (laughs) in order to make up, like, a parliamentary majority. Like, that's what I think. This is the thing, is, like, I my irritation with the Labour that part of the Labour left I know there's others that like actually agree with these points I'm going to make but generally like broadly speaking is that they don't have a like anti-systemic approach to politics they don't have like a rupture style approach to politics that you have to begin to break institutions not to capture them like if the Corbyn phenomenon has proved anything I think it's that you can capture an institution that's essentially an arm of the British state e.g. the Labour Party Mm -hmm. and put forward your uh, social democratic agenda that way like it's just not possible to you know Seize these institutions and you know, put in a, a figurehead that is progressive. You know, there actually has to be an anti systemic approach like about rupture within the British state or like rupture with neoliberalism, like even if that takes the form of Brexit, which is uncomfortable. See, well, you have to be able to seize those moments. I was gonna
1: say, I mean, the thing, the thing that again, the left should have looked at 2016 and said, uh, as an example, because. Look, was, was the Leave campaign quote-unquote electable? The answer is no. It was such a fucking clutch of rogues, right? Oh, weirdos. weirdos. <laughs> it had no leaders, right? It, all of its public faces were unacceptable. Dominic Cummings, Nigel Farage... Do you know what I mean? With the partial exception of Boris Johnson, but, I mean, he looked ridiculous They're all weird. Yeah, Michael Gove. None of these people are are inherently electable, right? The argument that they were making... I mean, some of the analyses that came out in December last year about why Labour lost were the kind of inevitable sort of... um, Well, Corbyn was offering something too radical to the British public who ultimately don't like radicalism. And you just think, man, they voted for Brexit. Like, do you know what I mean? And people can tell themselves all they like that 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 for British people is like an ultra-conservative move. And for some voters, it kind of was. It was about return to British identity and stuff like that. But even to do that, you've got to tear up a major part of Britain's foreign policy, which is a major part of Britain's presence in the world. Like, people just absolutely tore the shit out of that stuff right mm-hmm. so the idea that the people are completely unprepared for radicalism in this period just doesn't make a lot of sense mm. like from a survey of the politics of the last few years mm. uh, scottish independence come in where they're not a whisker but you know not that far off uh, the the rise of Sanders, the rise of corbyn brexit trump mm-hmm. uh politics all over the world. blah 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 like this idea of like electability, it's 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 so classic of the centre left that they'll be the last ones to believe it. You know what I mean? They're the last yeah. to jump on every bandwagon. Um, like they're the last people to. I, this is my major fear about about Keir Starmer is he'll still be clutching to neoliberal tropes when the Tories have abandoned. Which yes. is which is the situation yes. we're in now. Like
0: I, I, I agree. Um, I also saw, uh. A- poll about Keir Starmer's approval rating. So, mm. do you want to know how the real opposition are getting on?
1: Yeah. Well, I assume that they're 20 points ahead. Although uh, well, no, this is for Keir's,
0: Keir Starmer's approval rating. So, he's dropped one point mm. in approval. He's gone up nine points in disapproval. Interesting.
1: Interesting. Mm. Hmm. Uh, yeah,
0: that's that's how real opposition goes so that, down. So uh,
1: that's on Corbyn's last numbers?
0: Um, no, it's on Starmer's numbers when he became leader.
1: Right. Okay. So he's His already, personal approval. He, he's already yeah. be, begun the long descent, uh, descent rather. Yeah. Uh, so I we've assume got, will be with us for a long time.
0: He's on 30 th- 33% approve, 17% disapprove, and 51% neither approve nor disapprove a.k.a. don't, don't give know, a
1: shit don't, don't know who he is yeah.
0: don't know who he is, don't really care yeah
1: Yeah. I I, I mean it, it's going to be a long time until most people care about the thing called the Labour Party um, that's, that's, just, uh, that's just the situation we're in it's hard, hard to imagine who would start to care about the Labour Party at this point you know what I mean um, you know even more so in countries like this is the the wider situation of course is that labor has basically disappeared in Scotland it's on a sivevally peg in Wales which is worth watching by the way I don't think labour Wales is going to be a, a, a factor much longer um and has also of course disappeared over large areas of the of the north so Kingstan was in charge of this shrivelling property portfolio called the labor buy um and, and he actually does come across as a guy who's you know collecting uh, slightly dodgy property around the place. Um, but, yeah, and, and I imagine it's going to be getting weaker and weaker over the next few years. Uh, what about America? We are-
0: oh, I mean, if Merkel is mootie and Keir Starmer is stepdad, then Joe Biden is your deranged uncle, yeah. great uncle that's... Uh, very unwell with a degenerative brain illness.
1: He's, lo- he's losing his marbles, but he's also, you know, uh, he's also a sort of creepy uh, great-uncle Biden. Do you know what I mean? He's uh, he's a slightly touchy great-uncle Biden. Uh, in fact, I believe he's being referred to by Trump as creepy sleepy Joe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, he kind of rouses from his sleep long enough to play with a woman's hair. Uh, and then yeah. kind of nods off again um, I mean that, what a situation that is man I, I just um, every day that he's on uh, he's on like a live radio broadcast or a live TV broadcast it's the same story
0: I'm fascinated
1: by it yeah. like
0: I am genuinely fascinated by it um, yeah it's I mean the thing about Biden if he's the candidate which you know he probably will be that it's not really gonna be about Biden, it's gonna be about whoever is, you know, I would say pulling the strings but like, I don't know, plugging him in or whatever. Yeah. That's do you know what I mean the person who's really operating the the presidency. That I mean, and it's not gonna be Joe Biden because he's clearly not really there.
1: Yeah, so so some of his um his picks when he wins, he's already you know lining up who he's going to stuff his government with. Yeah. With, with, when he inevitably wins the U.S. election, uh, not. Um, but uh, and obviously, you, you would be surprised to find that it's absolutely bad with Wall Street. So, yeah. I mean, his presidency is just a kind of a, 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 a very shit falling apart Trojan horse for for Wall Street interests. Um, but. I mean, will that ever cohere? It's very hard to say because I think Trump's making a complete hash of the um, coronavirus stuff over there. But, I mean, even with that, in the middle of a national emergency, do you want Sleepy Creepy Joe to be in charge? Do you know what I mean? I mean, Millions of Americans... I wouldn't vote for Biden. I wouldn't if I was in America. I I don't think there's any point in doing it. Um,
0: Did you watch Bernie's endorsement vid?
1: Yeah, it's very sad. Uh, it, was, it was a very hard watch. Um, <laughs> I you couldn't help it. It's painful, like, giggle watching it because when he says, "And that's why I'm endorsing you, uh, Joe Biden," and Joe Biden goes, "Oh," <laughs> he, he just he lets out this little noise like he's so confused. Of course he's not. They set up that poll so that, to do the the endorsement. But his his acknowledgement of uh, Bernie Sanders' endorsement even was insulting. His, his his acknowledgement of the of his endorsement was just to sort of go oh <laughs> it was it, it was awful man it was sort of, as though like oh that's nice I've got your endorsement to <laughs> I mean it's terrible to watch man um, I
0: haven't I haven't watched it like I couldn't really bring myself to do it it just feels so sad
1: yeah it, it's 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 tragic and again I suppose it's a moment to reassess you know is 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 this really uh, the future of the left to, to 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 run on the democratic you know for the democratic nomination or something every few years, once every few years and then you know you know throw your support behind the awful uh, edifice of the democratic party <coughs> machine it's it's <laughs> it's presidential candidate from the crypt or shortly before <laughs> the crypt and the cabinet of Banker ghouls that he has established to ruin the lives of American workers is, is, that, a, is that a viable strategy over the long term? I mean, yes, but it's no. obviously not.
0: No, no. Um, well, on that optimistic note, <laughs> <laughs> um, there's. I mean, there's nothing else that I really want to say at this point.
1: Yeah. Um, shall we wrap
0: up yeah I mean oh I mean the only thing that I want to mention is Thursday's event
1: oh of course yeah Uh, so we've
0: got um, we've got Costas Lapovitsis yeah doing a talk for CONTER
1: I'm really looking forward to this Costas Lapovitsis if you don't know obviously the kind of doyen of the uh, anti-EU anti-capitalist left uh, so I'm I'm very much looking forward to. it. Uh, he's going to be talking about I suppose like on a kind of broad scale about um, you know is this the end of neoliberalism? What does that mean for us? What are we arguing at, at this point? So, and so on. So that'll be a, that'll be a brilliant event. Uh, I think. Um,
0: yeah, I'm really looking forward to. It. I'm really I really like Costas Slapouvis's take. Um, he's uh kind of prince of the Lexiteers, I would say.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah he was a... He's, a
0: he's, he's basically a pinup of the Lexiteers.
1: Yeah, he, he was a... If you don't know him, he was a, a former uh, Syriza MP who obviously rebelled. Yeah, again. he wasn't,
0: obviously, from the Eurocom <laughs> tradition.
1: <laughs> no. um, but he's also, I mean, for years and years, he, he was central to a body of academics who studied uh, the Eurozone and who can see the problems coming and accurately diagnose them when they arrived. Um, uh, So he's, yeah, he's, he's got those chops. Um,
0: So it's, you can register on Eventbrite and there's a Facebook event for it, which gives you all the links. So yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be a really good, a good event.
1: I hope to see you all there. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah that's uh i think that's us um well thanks everyone for listening and hopefully we will get this pod out asap and kind of get back on track because this is a little late because uh i don't know i think we're both having a sort of like weird existential crisis uh
1: yeah uh it was last week was a strange week i'm, I'm kind of uh, uh wondering what uh what the next couple are going to look like now over the rest of this uh lockdown. um but yeah we'll be cracking them out every uh, every week
0: <laughs> gross <laughs> <laughs> bye bye okay
1: um